Welcome to the Apple for the Teacher podcast, the true crime podcast that features the good apples and the bad apples within the school system. My name is Anna Thomas, a teacher and your host. So join me as I present school stories that are tragic, shocking, unbelievable and outright bizarre. Hello everyone, this is episode 15, great to have your company. To begin, here are a few shout-outs. Firstly, to Nisha Mbell, I hope I said your name correctly, who left a lovely comment on Facebook saying that she loves the podcast. Thank you so much, Nisha. I really hope I did say your name correctly. You know, I'm surprised by the feedback that I've been getting about the podcast. People have said since they found the podcast that they've been binging the episodes. This is something you often hear in podcast circles about people liking a podcast so much that they binge the episodes in one go. And I never, ever thought people would say this about my pod. They've even asked about merchandise and Patreon. What? Someone said they would love to have a coffee mug with the Red Apple logo. Really? Let's start today with our country focus, which is Monaco. Hello, if you're from Monaco. Did you know that Monaco has an almost zero unemployment rate? The country does not have any poor people. It has the highest millionaires and billionaires per capita of any country in the world. Monaco is a tax haven. The country survives solely on the revenue generated by its tourism and casinos which is a very strange dichotomy because Monaco does not allow its own citizens to visit casinos. Hmm. Monaco also doesn't have airports, but it does have heliports. So hello to everyone from Monaco. Today's episode will be different from the usual bad apple, good apple stories. There will only be one bad apple story as it's a very long one. This will be part one and the remainder of the story will be told in part two after the podcast recommendations. So let's preview the episode. It's called The Big Bang. There was a sign on the fence that said, Criminals are made, not born. Who wrote it and why? Now, if you have listened to the other episodes of the podcast, You will know that as well as not naming the perpetrators of crimes or showing their photo, I also don't provide details of the perpetrator's early life unless there is a good reason to do so. For this episode, I will be providing details of their history as it's very pertinent to the story. Before I get into the story, I thought it would be fitting to introduce the person at the centre of the story by describing something he did, which gives you an insight into his psyche. He made a sign which he placed on the fence of his property, which read, Criminals are made, not born. So think about that for a moment. It will all become clear very soon. This story took place in the 1920s in America, with a school at the centre of the incident. So let's look at the history of the area. And the school. The township of Bath was a small farming community 
in Detroit, Michigan, in the USA. The area had a number of small one-room schoolhouses. It was decided to create a single consolidated school called the Bath Consolidated School. This allowed separate classrooms for each grade for the first time. Many of the students came from the surrounding farms. For the consolidation to go ahead, property taxes had been increased. This decision had been passed through a referendum. Now we will look at the man at the centre of the story, whose name will not be used, so my apologies for the repetitious use of the pronoun he. Let's start with the man's background. He was born in Michigan in the US in 1872. When he was a teenager, his mother died and his father remarried. His stepmother was severely burned when the oil stove exploded as she was trying to light it. Her stepson threw a bucket of water over her, but it did nothing as the fire was oil-based. She died of her injuries. There were allegations made that the stove had been tampered with and the stepson was implicated, but nothing was proven. He went to college and studied electrical engineering, where he met his future wife. After college, he worked as an electrician, during which time he suffered a head injury during a fall. He had been in a coma for two weeks. After the injury, he went back to live with his father. After marrying Nellie Price, they purchased a farm near the village of Bath in Michigan. The property was partly purchased through cash and the rest mortgaged. He was described by people who knew him as being very neat and meticulous with his clothing and also obsessively tidy with his farm and tools. He was thought of as a bit odd and socially awkward. His personality was described as angry and impatient, especially when people didn't agree with him. He was also known to display cruelty to his farm animals. Once he shot dead a dog that had strayed onto his property from a nearby farm. In 1924, he was elected onto the school board and then became treasurer. He was described as being very difficult to work with, often wanting his own way and voting against the board on various matters. He was very frugal and argued about how money was spent, even voting against the purchase of the most necessary equipment. He had a long-running feud with the board superintendent, accusing him of financial mismanagement. He also argued long and hard about the high taxes. He came into blows with financial institutions and tried to get the valuation of his property reduced in order to lower his taxes. He also claimed the cost of his farm had been too high and tried to get the mortgage removed, which was unsuccessful. His wife Nellie became very sick, and the frequent medical visits put a strain on their finances, with the family getting into increasing debt. They could no longer pay the mortgage, and eventually the mortgage company would foreclose on the property. The town school had also been paid for by property tax increases, and therefore he thought this was to blame for the foreclosure of his farm. In 1925, he was temporarily appointed as town clerk, but was subsequently defeated in the next election. 
which severely angered him. Now we jump to 1927 when the incident at the centre of this story occurred. It was May 18th and the last day of the school year. At 8.45 in the morning, part of the school building suddenly exploded. The explosion was heard quite a distance away from the school by a student named Irene Dunham. She wasn't at school that day as she had a sore throat. She was 19 at the time and gave an interview about what happened only two years ago at the ripe old age of 109. She said, quote, We knew it came from Bath, but we didn't know what it was or anything. So we jumped into the old car and drove as fast as we could to see what it was. People came from far and wide to see what happened. Part of the school structure had collapsed, pinning students and teachers underneath, some who were not to survive. As the rescue effort was happening, the school board member we met at the start of this story arrived in his truck some 30 minutes later. The school superintendent, with whom he had a strained relationship, was helping with the rescue effort. He waved him over to his truck. The superintendent asked him to help, then said, you know something about this, don't you? He responded by pulling out a gun and firing into the back seat of his truck. An explosion ensued that killed the school superintendent, many bystanders and the man himself. It was discovered later that the truck had been filled with dynamite and shrapnel in the form of metal farm implements, nuts, bolts and nails. He had also put new tyres on the truck so it wouldn't break down while transporting the explosives and heavy cargo. In total, 38 school children and 6 adults lost their lives. 58 others had been injured. The incident came to be known as the Bath School Disaster and remains the deadliest school massacre in the US history, yet one that many people have never heard of. In the aftermath of the disaster and the investigation that ensued, the following is an account of what was established. A few days before the bombing, the man's wife Nellie had been discharged from hospital. He murdered her and placed her body in a wheelbarrow behind a chicken coop. He had placed firebombs in his house and farm buildings and detonated them on the same morning as the school explosion. As people saw the fire at his property and rushed to the scene, he left in his truck, saying to one of the firemen, quote, Boys, you're my friends. You better get out of here. You better head down to the school. And then he drove off. The farm explosion and school explosion went off almost simultaneously. Those responding to the farm explosion also heard the school explosion and turned around, rushing to the scene. During the recovery and clean-up of the ruins, more explosives were discovered, with a timing device set at the same time as the explosion. It was believed that something had gone wrong in the detonation and that he had intended to blow up the whole school. A large tank of gasoline was also found, which was believed to be the backup plan. In the months leading up to the school bombing, it is believed that he had secretly planted explosives in the school. 
a board member at the school had this to say, quote, he was an experienced electrician and the board employed him to make some repairs to the school lighting system. Therefore, he had ample opportunity to plant the explosives and lay the wires for touching it off. Records from local stores showed he had bought dynamite and pyrotol, explosives commonly used by farmers for excavation and burning debris. He purchased small amounts at different stores on different days and therefore did not raise any suspicions. Neighbours had heard explosions on his farm in the past but thought nothing of it. He was known to be called the dynamite farmer. Neighbours reported that there seemed to be suspicious behaviour at his farm. He had usually been seen working on his farm but now was witnessed to be twisting wires together and carrying straw into the tool shed where it had no reason to be. A kindergarten teacher recalled an interaction with the man not long before the tragedy. She asked him if she could use the woods on his property for a school picnic. He replied, if you are going to have a picnic, you would best have it right away. He had been in charge of handing out employee paychecks and said this to the school bus driver when handing over his cheque. My boy, you want to take good care of that cheque as it's probably the last cheque you will ever get. One of the perpetrator's neighbours was at the scene trying to help the trapped and injured and decided to drive back to his farm and get some heavy rope to help pull the ruined structure off the victims. He passed the perpetrator heading towards the school and said this. He grinned and waved his hand. When he grinned, I could see both rows of his teeth. In the aftermath of the tragedy, he was portrayed as an insane madman, as was to be expected. However, the details of the investigation showed the incident was meticulously planned and executed, and therefore the inquest concluded that he was of a rational mind. The inquest also looked at the question of whether the school or the school board were in any way guilty of criminal negligence. It was concluded, quote, he conducted himself sanely and so concealed his operations that there was no cause to suspect any of his actions. And we further find that the school board and Frank Smith, janitor of the school building, were not negligent in and about their duties and were not guilty of any negligence in not discovering his plan. And finally, as mentioned earlier, when his farm was investigated, a sign was found on the gate to the property saying, criminals are made, not born. This really angered me. No, you're not a victim. No one made you do what you did. You are a premeditated mass murderer, nothing less. And for such petty reasons. Because of taxes? Because you couldn't pay your mortgage? Give me a break. This story really just angered me. You know, I just really hate hearing when people do things and then they come up with the most petty excuses for what they did. And this man was certainly not a victim. He was a cold-blooded murderer. So that's the end of part one. And part two of the story will be told after these podcast recommendations. 
Hey, true crime fans. Have you listened to Wine and Crime yet? We're a true crime comedy podcast hosted by three childhood friends who chug wine, chat true crime, and unleash our worst Minnesotan accents. Each week, us gals pick a true crime topic and pair it with a delicious wine before delving into the background and psychology behind the crime. Then we share and speculate wildly about a couple of bonkers cases related to the topic. Past episodes include necrophilia, cults, crimes of passion, cruise ship disappearances, exorcisms gone wrong, all this over a bottle of wine, or let's be real, three. Listen anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Wine and Crime Pod, and check out our website and blog at WineandCrimePodcast.com. Cheers! Targeted. True crime. Domestic violence. We tell stories of those who were targeted by domestic abuse and investigate cases of family violence using academic research to interpret the events. As a college professor, I think we need to stop making family violence a secret. Let's use our stories to help heal and provoke change. Season three features the case of Josh Osborne, which is a story of abuse when he woke up, she was abusing him. When he went to sleep, she was abusing him. So his abuse was nonstop. It didn't matter what he did. Yeah. It was nonstop. But it is also a story of hope. Targeted. True crime, domestic violence. Listen to us for free on all of your favorite podcatchers. Peace, my friends. Peace. So let's continue. As part one focused on the awful details of the tragedy and the perpetrator himself, I would like to dedicate this episode to the victims and the survivors. Now let's look at what happened to the school after the bombing. It was decided to demolish the damaged section, which was the northern wing, and construct a new wing. Architect Warren Holmes designed the new building without cost. Donations flooded in from around the country. Michigan's Republican U.S. Senator James Cousins donated $75,000 of his own money. The school was then renamed the James Cousins Agricultural School after the senator. The incident had occurred on the last day of the school year and following the resumption of school, classes were held in the community hall and various other stores in the area. The rebuilding was completed after a year and classes moved back to the old schoolhouse. In 1975, the school was completely demolished and replaced with a memorial park. In 1991, a memorial marker was erected bearing the names of the victims. The cupola from the original building managed to be salvaged and preserved. A cupola is a small, often dome-like structure on top of a building. They were often used as a lookout or to allow light and air into a building. It still stands in the Memorial Park today. You can see photos on the Facebook page and on Instagram. Now it's important to finish the story by focusing on the victims and survivors. As you may recall from part one, we were introduced to Irene Dunham, a survivor who reached the age of 109. She had been at home sick on the day, Here is her account of what happened. 
Irene had gone through a number of ordeals in her life. She had survived the influenza pandemic of 1918, the Great Depression and both world wars. She outlived her husband and son and also colon cancer, which doctors had diagnosed as terminal. And most importantly of all, she survived the deadliest school attack in US history. She recalled, quote, The postmaster was out in the yard because there was so much going on. And then when he blew that car up, part of it hit him and killed him and injured a lot of other people. He was in it, of course, and part of him was on the wire overhead, hanging. I never could get over that. In no time at all, the place was surrounded with cars and everything. I've never seen so many ambulances and everything shut down. It was a madhouse. Her brother Lloyd was lucky because he was at the other end of the school and he only lost a finger. Her sister Eva jumped out of the first floor window with her classmates to safety. Irene was engaged at the time of the bombing and the wedding had already been planned. She didn't know if she could go through with it, but her family convinced her to go ahead. The bombing occurred on the last day of the school year and Irene was in the graduating class, but the graduation ceremony did not take place. But she finally received her diploma 50 years later when the 1977 Bath High School graduating class invited all the seniors in her class to their ceremony. I just love that. Since the attack, she has read many books about the incident and said, quote, It reminds me of all of it, a lot of the little ones that were killed. I knew their parents. It's just hard. What can I do? What can anybody do? I do think about those little kids. Most of them were buried in the Pleasantville Cemetery in Bath. Think how old they'd be. They didn't have a chance. End quote. Her 71-year-old son described her as a very determined person. She's definitely independent and she's sharp, sharp as a tack. At age 109, she still has a driver's license, reads the daily paper and works in her garden. As she gave her last interview at the age of 109 in 2017, I was looking to see if she was still alive. I found a site called the 110 Club, the world's largest supercentarian forum. It had her listed with people wishing her a happy 110th birthday. So she turned 110 on the 16th of December 2017. I haven't been able to find anything further, but she could now be 111 and turning 112 in December this year. So, of course, I'm going to keep looking to see if I can find out. Now we look at one of the children who lost their lives. Richard Fritz was eight years old at the time and was injured. He survived for almost a year before finally passing away. Although it's not certain what caused his death, he had an infection which was believed to have been caused by the explosion. His gravesite never had a marker, but 87 years after his death, an anonymous donor gave Richard a gravestone. It features an angel, which is a depiction of his teacher, Hazel Weatherby, carrying his soul to heaven. 
A small group of 25 people attended the ceremony at the cemetery. Loretta Stanaway, president of the Friends of Lansing's Historic Cemeteries, said this, quote, The final injustice of an unmarked grave is put to rest today. I hope this will be another layer of closure for those who need it, end quote. Now I'd like to finish the story by paying tribute to all those who lost their lives. Here is a complete list of their names. First, we have Nellie, who was 52, the wife of the perpetrator, and thankfully they didn't have any children. Those killed in the bombing were Arnold Burel, age 9, Henry Bergen, age 14, Herman Bergen, aged 11, Emily Bromunt, aged 11, Robert Bromunt, aged 12, Floyd Burnett, aged 12, Russell Chapman, 8, Robert Cochran, 8, Ralph Cushman, 7, Earl Ewing, 11, Catherine O'Foot, 10, Marjorie Fritz, 9, Carlisle Geisenhaver, 9, George Hall Jr., 8, Willa Hall, 11, Iola Hart, 12, Percy Hart, 11, Vivian Hart, 8, Blanche Hart, 30, Galand Hart, 12, Lavia Hart, 9, Stanley Hart, 12, Francis Hopner, 13, Cecil Hunter, 13, Doris Johns, 8, Thelma MacDonald, 8, Clarence McFarren, 13, Emerson Medkoff, 8, Emma Nichols, 13, Richard Richardson, 12, Elsie Robb, 12, Pauline Schertz, 10, Hazel Weatherby, 21, Elizabeth Witchell, 12, Lucille Witchell, 9, Harold Woodman, 8, George Zimmerman, 10, and Lloyd Zimmerman, 12. And those who were killed at the truck bombing, Cleo Clayton, 8, Emery Hike, 33, the school superintendent, Nelson McFarren, 74, a farmer, and Glenn Smith, 33, the postmaster. And Beatrice Gibbs, age 10, who died a few weeks after the explosion. There are many black and white photos of the incident, and I've created a presentation which you can find on the Facebook page and Instagram. I'm such a lover of history, so I really enjoyed researching this story. And finally, I would so appreciate if you would leave me a review on iTunes and remember to submit your questions about the podcast for the Q&A episode coming up. So leave your question at applefortheteacherpodcast at gmail.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Or you can even leave a voice message wherever you listen to the podcast. 
We have a small group on Facebook and would love to see some new faces. I'd now like to give you a preview of episode 16. It's called Buried Alive and Zero Tolerance. Here's a summary. A school bus trip doesn't go as planned. Why? A teacher gave a student a zero mark. What happened? So to end this episode, I will leave you with this quote. A child's mental health is more important than their grades. Bye for now and remember to be a good apple.